Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, January 24th. So, who can win the 2022 Australian Open? It's the question on the top of every tennis fan's mind and the subject of our two mini break podcast Monday here at Cracked Rackets on part one of this show. I explored the top half of the men's and women's singles draws in Melbourne, talked about the players that I thought were most likely not only to advance out of their sections, but to win the year's first Grand Slam event. I want to do exactly that here on this show, obviously with a switched up focus onto the bottom half of the men's and women's singles draws. And, you know, I want to recap day eight's results, much like I did on day seven, try to touch on every round of 16 match that was played. There were only eight of them. And again, it's much less chaotic to have to follow eight singles matches than it is to have to follow 16 or 32 or 64 when things are completely out of control on days one and two. And, you know, I've said this before on this podcast, you have to give a massive shout out to the media department at the Australian Open, their ability to crank out highlight reel after highlight reel. They've got the shorter three, three and a half minute versions. They've also got the long eight, eight and a half minute versions as well. You feel like you can watch enough of every match that's been played throughout the course of this tournament. And that is a major shout out to the Australian Open who have set the standard now for what, in my opinion, every other slam should be doing moving forward here in 2021 but uh, uh 2022 excuse me hey great shot but you know again with that in mind, because I am able to watch all of these eight matches with a little more uh, depth, I want to talk about each of them. I want to talk about why I think certain players are better positioned to make title runs than others. I want to talk about the pathways they've taken to get to this point of the tournament, how they move forward from here as well. So I'm going to touch on all of the round of 16 matches. Obviously, there are some storylines we have to hit, right? Cornet reaching the first Grand Slam quarterfinal of her career. Iga Sviantek finally tested but surviving. Danielle Collins, Elisa Mertens, and what was the match of the day. Of course, Tsitsi Potsford, all of it. We'll touch on all of it, as we always do here on our Grand Slam Daily Recaps. Of course, if you're looking for preview content, we have moved that entirely over to the Great Shot podcast feed. If you listen for our GSP Ace of the Day picks, you will also, the rest of the way, hear me break down each of the matches that are going to be played on any given day. I'll offer, you know, to some extent, my picks for those matches, certainly my aces of the day are formal picks, but offer you my feeling on where things stand. So if you're looking for preview content, Great Shot Podcast feed is the feed for you. You can find that wherever you listen to your shows or on our website, crackrackets.com. Uh, of course, again, all of our content, if you've missed anything from this 2022 Australian Open, all available to play catch up with on the website as well. With that in mind, one last thing. As always, you knew it was coming. Shout out to all of you listeners. We are immensely grateful for your continued support 
support of our efforts here at Cracked Rackets. That's why we try to go daily here throughout these uh, Grand Slams is because we know you listeners are looking for the newest and latest information. You want to be kept up to date so that you can thoroughly enjoy one of four Grand Slam experiences on the year. So on behalf of all of us, thank you for your continued support. Thank you to our Cracked Rackets Patreon family as well. They're obviously privy to our Match of the Day segments throughout these Grand Slams. If that's something that interests you or you just like to support our work, you can do so by going to our website, CrackedRackets.com. Find out how you can become a Patreon member today. Of course, a massive shout out as always to our friends over at Tennis Point. Best equipment, best prices, all in one location, tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15. Not only will you get 15% off all sale items, you also get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. I've said it before. I'll say it again. You look good on a court. You're going to feel good on that court. You're going to play good on that court. And I know what you're thinking. You're going to play well. No, 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 no. You're going to play good on that court. Look good, feel good, play good. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, let's talk about day eight at the 2022 Australian Open. The match I want to start with is actually the one five setter we saw on the day between number four seed Stefano Tsitsipas and number 20 seed Taylor Fritz. Now, there are many takeaways from both sides of this match. I think we have to start with the Taylor Fritz portion, though. The 24-year-old Americans' resurgence? I don't know if that's the right word because it's not a resurgence. Now, certainly he has had the pedigree throughout the course of his career, was the number one junior in the world, made a junior Grand Slam final, made two of them actually losing in the final of the 2015 uh, uh, Junior French Open excuse me, to Tommy Paul, but then beating Tommy Paul in the final of the Junior U.S. Open that year, going on to win a couple of challengers in Sacramento right after that title, and then making that Memphis final in the February coming after that, it felt like Taylor Fritz was going to surge to the top of the top 100, to the top of the top 50, be in the mix as a top 20 sort of guy right away. And, you know, then things plateaued a bit for Fritz. I don't think it's unfair to say that. Now, that's not to say he didn't continue to get better, but maybe he didn't get better at the rate that people were expecting him to get better. You look for Taylor Fritz in, you know, 2018 after, you know, making a move in that 2016 season, first time really playing full-time tour-level events, you know, 23 and 21 in that 2018 season, 52% win percentage, then 31 and 28 in 2019, 52% win percentage, 14 and 15 in 2020 as well. And, you know, wasn't playing his best tennis to start 2021, actually has knee surgery, right? Immediately after that French Open. And then you just look for him down the home stretch of the season, whether it was making that third round at Wimbledon before getting knocked out by four uh, in four by Zverev right after surgery, or obviously most notably, you know, semifinals of Indian Wells, semifinals of Atlanta, finals in St. Petersburg, corner finals at the Paris Masters. Fritz bought his best tennis down the home stretch of the season, and he duplicated that tennis here in Australia. And again, you look for the hold percentages for him, you know, 74, 76, and 75. And, you know, he's up to uh, all, all the, excuse me, 74, 76, I meant, sorry, 80, 83, 80, 
84, 82. He's all the way up to 87 uh, this season in hold percentage. You look for him, that 70 numbers were the first serve win percentage, the second serve win percentage this season, small sample size, but at a career high, 57.2%. And then the, the biggest progress has been him as a returner. And I think you saw that manifest itself in this match against Stefano Tsitsipas. You look overall in the match for Stefano Tsitsipas, a 4 4-6-6-4 victory over Fritz. Tsitsipas only won 48% of his second serve points. And when you look at the numbers for Taylor Fritz again, the break percentage has always been where he's struggled because while he does have the feel as a returner, the condensed ground strokes and the ability to crack on a hanging second serve or, you know, down the line, whatever it may be, the movement has always been where he struggled. He's always been susceptible to the plus one ball. And even if he's tracked down that plus one ball, you know, he's in such a compromised position that there's no way he's going to track down the next shot. And so he feels pressure to try and hit a winner on that first passing shot, try and do the outstanding. And sometimes he's capable of it, but I think that is why his break percentage has suffered all the years, the movement, not anything from a skill set perspective. And I just think watching this match, it's unequivocal that Taylor Fritz has taken the next step as a mover and that his fitness has continued to improve. And again, his ability to punish Tsitsipas second serves, take those balls early on the rise, hit them deep with pace into the Tsitsipas backhand. And then, you know, again, he straight up beat Tsitsipas in those backhand cross-court rallies. He beat him forehand cross-court as well. And you look for Taylor Fritz throughout the course of this match. I think what a testament to his improvement in fitness, he outplayed Tsitsipas in the five plus shot rallies. He outplays him, you know, plus eight in that category. And just the longer the rally went, Tsitsipas didn't have a neutral gear. Tsitsipas had to play plus one tennis. It had to be the serve, a first forehand to get Fritz stretched and then stretched. And then, you know, Tsitsipas will follow it up to the net or Tsitsipas would, you know, put that plus one forehand away and draw a Fritz air. And that's why Tsitsipas ultimately, you know, plus 15 in the zero to four shot rallies. And credit to Tsitsipas, who after dropping that first set, gets right after Taylor Fritz early in set number two. And, you know, Fritz fights off his initial break point chances, but Tsitsipas is able to secure the break. And then, you know, again, after Fritz takes his lead in set number three and is pushing at the beginning of set number four, Tsitsipas buckled down and he got back to what he did best, which is that first serve. It is that plus one forehand. And you look at the numbers for Tsitsipas, that was so impressive was the adjustments he made. First of all, makes 67% of his first serves, 19 aces on the match, wins 79% of his first serve points, 27 of 37 at the net. Now, of course, 53 winners in this match for Tsitsipas against 44 unforced errors as well. He took exactly what Fritz was giving to him, and he started opening things up, whether it be, and if you watch the third set film, particularly, you know, again, the holds down the home stretch of the third, uh, fourth set, excuse me, and the holds down the home stretch of the fifth set, you'll see on the ad side in particular, I mean, he had Taylor Fritz figured out. He's hitting the kick serve out wide. He's hitting the plus one forehand to the open deuce court. Make Taylor Fritz do something special with that plus one forehand. And then by the end of that fifth set, because Fritz knew that ball was coming, Tsitsipas was able to open up the shot behind him, hit that first forehand down the line. And, you know, again, because Fritz would get a little bit tentative attacking the backhand, Tsitsipas was willing to go big up the line with his backhand as well. I just thought Tsitsipas responded really well to what was an extraordinary level from Taylor Fritz. When I look at this match, and that's why I wanted to start uh, talking not about the winner, but about Taylor Fritz, Fritz hit 52 winners 
against 37 unforced errors, plus 15 in that category. He won 79% of his first serve points, 56% of his second serve points, faced just five break points in a five-set match, and was broken three of five times. Here's the difference, though. Stefano Tsitsipas, three of five on break point chances. Taylor Fritz, two of 15 for the match on his break point chances. It felt like Tsitsipas, whenever he needed it, was able to find a first serve, was able to find a plus one forehand. And as as much improved as Taylor Fritz is, he is still susceptible from a movement standpoint to elite weapons. And what this victory tells you is that when push comes to shove, the Stefano Tsitsipas serve and forehand combo is an elite weapon. And whether you think Taylor Fritz is a top 20 guy or not, I think he's pretty clearly a top 35 sort of guy. And thus, he's the guy that Tsitsipas should be beating, whether, you know, for a variety of reasons, whether it be, you know, the plus one ball, whether it be from a fitness standpoint, in this case, it was the, or, you know, whether it be whatever it be fundamentally, that's what the difference between Stefano Tsitsipas is. He was just, he buckled down in sets three, uh, four and five, kept things simple ultimately stuck to the play that one had him you know that has had him the, earned him the most success excuse me throughout the course of his career and wins this match and again all of the credit in the world to Taylor Fritz who when things were at neutral as the stats suggested Fritz won those rallies. You know, Fritz was able to grind down the Tsitsipas backhand throughout the course of this match and was able to open up things for himself when Tsitsipas would hang a backhand, whether it be the inside-out, inside-in forehand combo, whether it be backhand, short-angle, cross-court to backhand down the line. Fritz did everything well in this match. He game-planned well. He executed well. Tsitsipas was still better. And that right there is a testament to the number four seed, Stefano Tsitsipas, who you look now in his career, you know, Stefano Tsitsipas into the sixth, uh, excuse me, fourth quarterfinal of his, fifth quarterfinal, I forgot that withdrawal, fifth quarterfinal of his career, all of those quarterfinals coming since the 2019 season, and you look for him, you know, again, Roland Garros 2020 makes the quarterfinals there, and Australian Open 2021 makes the quarterfinals there, Roland Garros last year makes the quarterfinals there, obviously further in some of these instances. Now he's into the quarterfinals once again. He has continued to hold seat, despite not exactly looking as though he is playing his best tennis. Again, you look for Stefano Tsitsipas, his pathway to get here. Straight sets over Mikhail Emer in round one, then four sets over Baez, four sets over Payer, four sets now over Fritz. I do think he's gotten better and better throughout the course of this match uh, tournament. And again, he hasn't been broken more than twice in any of the matches that he's uh, played. That's a testament to his progress to that first serve plus one forehand combo becoming elite of the elite, a top five sort of uh, weapon combo on the ATP tour. Ultimately, it drives him to winning this match. Now, he's got the test of all tests next, and I'm just going to go here because it's the natural place to go in Yannick Sinner, who has taken the next step at this 2022 Australian Open and, you know, looked elite against the competition that he's faced. And against Alex Diemenauer, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, uh, Sinner just crushed him. Like, I, I don't know how else to say it. Demon Hour competed so exceptionally well, and that first set in particular, so competitive between the two of them when Demon Hour was his freshest and was willing to continue to track down all of the angles Sinner was opening and was getting to the ball early enough that he was able to wind up and just unleash on some of these on the run forehand cross courts that were laughably athletic. 
But the relentlessness of the center topspin, of the heaviness of center's ground strokes, ultimately win him this match. And you look for Yannick Sinner, it's efficient across the board. 35 winners against 30 errors. 26 of 32 on net points. Wins 75% of his first serve points, 62% of his second serve points, makes 62% of his first serves in the match, fights off seven of the eight break points he faces throughout the course of this match. Now, I do want to say, you know, Demonauer had his chances, whether it be at the start of the first set, you know, Sinner gets some breakpoint opportunities right away in that opening service game for Demonauer, and, you know, Demonauer responds and earns himself some breakpoint chances, I believe, at 1-2 in that, uh, I want to say, 1-2, uh, excuse me, in that first set. Uh, but Sinner's able to go big serve down the tee, easy plus one inside in forehand to fight it off. And it's just like, again, a borderline elite combo. And on the inside tee serve, he hit at that 30-40 point on deuce. I don't think I've seen a serve, uh, center T-serve on that side have that sort of knife on it, have that sort of bite on it. That's a testament to the progress he's continued to make and the work he's put in on that serve, which statistically is still the weakest part of his game. But guess what? When your serve's your weakest part as a 20-year-old and weakest in terms of relativity, he's 30th, not 6th like he is by break percentage. Um, yeah, it, it's great to see that progress as well. And again, it just it felt like everything was on Sinner's terms. Even when Demon Hour was able to connect with a forehand, Sinner was hitting the ball with that that much harder, with that much more pace, but more pressingly, that much more action on the ball coming back at Demon. And in particular, it was the backhand where Yannick Sinner ended up winning this match. And credit to Demon Hour, who did not allow Yannick Sinner to hit many easy forehands in this match. In particular, felt like he would only pull trigger cross court when he was hitting his on the run forehand and therefore would get Sinner on the move with the Sinner forehand. Uh, but, you know, Sinner's relentlessness wore out. It's just, you know, you get hammer the wall, you hammer the wall, you hammer the wall until you finally break through. That's what Sinner was able to do. And I do want to credit Demon Hour, who did generate pace on the forehand wing, who did, when landing first serves, was able to play some plus one tennis and keep Sinner stretched in the outer thirds and keep him from dictating. He won 73% of his first serve points. But he only won 45% of his second serve points and 24 winners in this match. But against 37 unforced errors, he had to start pressing because, again, by set number two, set number three, the dynamic of this match was extraordinarily clear that it was on Sinner's terms. And Demon Hour had to try to break that and take some chances earlier in the rally. And he just wasn't quite able to execute on those plays still. I thought it was a great effort from Demon Hour. And you look at the numbers from this match, you know, that Sinner was only plus 10 in the zero to four shot category, a testament to the plus one tennis Demon Hour was able to play when he was landing first serves. But you look for Demon Hour, he can't get outplayed on those five plus shot rallies, right? And Demon Hour outplays him by, I believe, plus uh, 10 in the five plus shot rallies throughout the course of the match. I think that's just a testament, again, because I do think Demon Hour played not his very, very best match, but played about as well as you could have asked from him. And Sinner just had the bigger weapon. Sinner was the more efficient player. Sinner's ability to turn on a forehand and just the angle he can create with his cross-court backhand as well, it never ceases to amaze me. And you look for Yannick Sinner, 56-22 and 22 now in his last 52 weeks of play. You look for him at the Grand Slams. He's 18-9 and nine at Grand Slams in his career. And you forget with Yannick Sinner because he is, you know, it feels like so experienced. He's only played nine main draws 
throughout the course of his career. Now, he's played nine main draws. He's reached two quarterfinals in those nine main draws. Perhaps most impressively, he's reached four second weeks in those nine main draws as well. Two and two winners of the round of 16 matches. His losses to Rafa and Zverev. His wins now over Zverev and Dimonauer, respectively. I just think... By every growth trajectory, I, and I saw someone tweeted out today, you know, Yannick Sinner, the youngest player since Juan Martin Del Potro to have uh, two quarterfinal appearances at Grand Slams in his career. And by the way, you know who else? Felix Ogier Aliassime is the third youngest player, and we'll get to him, to have, uh, excuse me, is the youngest player since Juan Martin Del Potro to have three quarterfinal appearances at Grand Slams as well. It feels like these two are always popping up on those sorts of lists because that's the sort of success they've already experienced in their still very, very young careers. Credit to the Sin Man. I mean, you look at DraftKings, you look at Tennis Abstract, Sinner is fa- the favorite over Tsitsipas. 52.8% according to our friends at Tennis Abstract, a, I believe, minus 155 favorite right now according to our friends at, Tab- uh, at DraftKings. He's the real deal, folks. The young Italian's coming. The weaknesses, I, I, again, he, he gets better and better as a mover. The first serve is becoming elite, and the second serve has a little bit more bite on it now than it did before. He's changed up his locations. He continues to be comfortable moving forward. 26 of 32 at the net against Demon Hour. Just a complete performance from the Sin Man. And if you're at the reason, again, I wanted to follow this up because if you're asking me, I test wise, who has played better from start to finishes and matches? Who has flashed the best skills between Tsitsipas and Sinner? While I think Tsitsipas has been tested harder, obviously this is the first seed Sinner played and, you know, Demon Hour great, but can't necessarily generate the pace that some of the guys left, the Berrettinis of the world, the, you know, Medvedev on serves of the world, Tsitsipas's of the world as well. I mean, obviously, Rafa's Rafa, by the way. Um, You know, this was Sinner's first test against something like that, and he passed with flying colors, and his weapons were big enough to hit through the elite fitness and the elite speed of Alex Diemenauer. And I just think, again, this was the first test. He passed it with flying colors. Now, Tsitsipas was pushed, and he certainly passed the test but I just think this, the plus one ball of Sinner has looked just as good as the plus one ball of Tsitsipas. I think Sinner hasn't been as battle tested. Therefore, he probably comes in a bit fresher, uh, the more fresh of the two players uh, with Tsitsipas. And then I just think Sinner wins at the intangible qualities, whether it be the five to eight plus shot rallies where he's beating Demon Hour in that category. If Tsitsipas can't beat Fritz in the, in the five plus shot rallies. How can he beat Sinner, who's that much more fluid in the outer thirds and equally dynamic with both wings? I think that's a problem for Stefano Tsitsipas. I think the num- there's a reason the numbers and the odds makers, the public are in line here. I think Sinner has looked better via the eye test. I mean, again, he's dropped one set throughout the course of this tournament. He, he yes, it's only his uh, second career uh, Grand Slam quarterfinal, but Again, from a growth perspective, doesn't it make sense that he's reaching another quarterfinal this early in his career? Doesn't it make sense? The first time there's a number 11 seed next to his name, he rides it all the way to the quarterfinals after the top eight seed in his section, Kasper Ruud, is eliminated. I think this all just sticks to the script for Yannick Sinner, and he still needs a signature win here at this Grand Slam. And I think a signature win at a Slam in general, because yes, he beat Zverev at the French Open, but if you remember, Zverev was sick and just wasn't playing particularly well, and it was certainly a good win, but not a signature win. It feels like beating Tsitsipas at this stage, in this moment, to set up a potential clash with either a Felix Ogier, Ali Asim, or you know, a Daniil Medvedev, 
this feels like the moment, the signature win for Yannick Sinner, for him to earn that signature win. I think he's going to do it as for now, but that's something we'll explore in our Ace of the Day preview. I do think Yannick Sinner can win this tournament. And again, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract, 10.2% chance of doing so. That's second behind Daniil Medvedev. Rafa third, by the way, at 10.1. Tsitsipas fourth at 8.1. I'm a man of the numbers, but I think the eye test passed that as well. If you're asking me who has played the best of everyone in the draw, I think I might say Sinner has played the best. I think Medvedev has the best pedigree and he's earned the right to be the clear-cut favorite. Rafa's looked good. Sinner's looked dominant. Even in his straight set victories, Rafa struggled a bit, especially in first sets in matches. And I know he's got Shapovalov tonight, and I do think he's going to end up knocking off Shapovalov. But I've really liked the way the Sin Man played. This is the, the litmus test. If he gets through, I mean, obviously it's the quarterfinals, but if he can get through Pass comfortably, I think I'm going to pick him to beat Medvedev. I just think this is the Sinner tournament. I think it's all lined up for him. We talked about it before the event started. I think he is playing that well. He proved it against Demon Hour. Hostile, it wasn't a hostile crowd, but he silenced them the entire time because the match was on his terms, no matter how well and how exciting Demon Hour was at times. I do agree Sinner should be the favorite over Tsitsipas for now. I'm leading Sinner. I I would put him I would put him two behind Medvedev. I think Medvedev's most likely to win it. Then I'd go Sinner. Then I'd go Nadal. Then I'd go Berrettini. And then, yeah. And then things get interesting. But again, those were my two most pressing matches on the women uh, on the men's side I wanted to touch. Obviously, you hear it coming out of my mouth. That's where I want to go next. Now, let's talk about the women's side and talk about the two players on the bottom half, I think, most likely to emerge. And I think pretty safe to say Iga Svantec has separa- had separated herself from the rest of the bottom half of the draw leading into this round. She had yet to drop a set. She looked so good in the warm-up events before getting knocked out by Ashley Barty, who's still undefeated. And again, go watch that match. Sviantek played against Barty in the warm-up event. Sviantek played excellent. Barty was just on another level through the first 45 minutes of that match. And so, you know, it was it was good and bad. I think it was good to see Iga get tested in this matchup because when you look for Iga Sviantek, she had cruised on her way to uh, this fourth round. And now for Iga, you know, to earn a 5-7-6-3-6-3 win over a very much informed Serana Kirstea, Watching that match just showed me how many options Iga Svantec has throughout the course of any given tennis match. And you look in this match, she wins 76% of her first serves. That's money, right? 24% of her second serve points. She goes 9 of 38 on those second serve points. And it wasn't one of those 20 double fault performance like we've seen from Marina Sabalenka. Kirstea was just taking that ball early on the rise, using the kick of Svantec to just bunt down on the return of serve. The amount of backhand down the line winners she hit in this match, you look for Serana Kirstea, 27 winners. I would venture to say 14 of those 27 were backhand winners down the line. And her ability to take the ball early on the rise and again, redirect and utilize the top spin of Sviantec to keep her own ground strokes down. It was a brilliant performance from Serana Kirstea, who, you know, a little less efficient on serve, wins 58% of her first serve points, 44% of her second serve points. And I think that's the testament to Iga, who just 
you know, eventually over the course of three sets, extended Kirstea into the outer thirds over and over and over again. You know, she's plus nine in the five plus shot rally category throughout the course of this match. And of course, when you watch Iga, it is the spin on her shots, the heaviness of those balls, her ability to open up angles for herself and then take a ball early and on the rise, particularly on that backhand wing. That backhand down the line is fantastic. And then the physicality Iga can bring in, again, not only the heaviness of her ball, but her own ability to track down what Kirstea is doing, force Kirstea to hit that one extra shot. I mean, again, Sviantek plus one in the zero to four shot rallies, plus two in the five to eight shot rallies, plus seven in the nine plus shot rallies. She won across the board in this match. Now, narrow margins. And again, that's a testament to Kirstea, who was just ripping away throughout the course of this match, playing as though she did have nothing to lose. And, you know, Sviantek was able was able to weather the storm, and that's what the great ones do throughout the course of a Grand Slam because, again, I think Kirstea opens up right away with a break of serve to start the match. And, you know, Kirstea is just firing away backhand after backhand. And Sviantek managed to level that back and sort of slow things down in that first set, get the match back to neutral. Now, again, Credit to Kirstea, who I, I do think got a bit tired by the end of this match, just didn't have the wheels left in her as this match went on. But, you know, again, this was a really fun one. And I do think when you look for Iga Sviantek now, who, by the way, uh, you look for her overall in her career, 37-10 and 10 at Grand Slams. That's just laughable. You look overall, she's made, uh, you know, 37-10. and 10, So she's played 11 Grand Slam main draws, right? You look for her round of 128. Yep, she's 11. No, she's played 12 Grand Slam main draws in her career. Obviously, she wins the French Open. So she's played 12 Grand Slam main draws. She's made the second week in eight of them. Come on now. Like, yeah, she's three and five in round of 16s. I understand that. But she's made, of 12 Grand Slams she's played, she's made eight round of 16s or further. Three quarters of them. Like, two thirds of them. Excuse me. Good math there, Alex. Two thirds. Eight twelves, two thirds. Two thirds of them. 66%. She is still just 20 years old. She already has six, uh, eight uh, Grand Slam round of 16s to her name. A testament to her complete skill set. And by the way, those round of 16s have come at every Grand Slam event. She's done a U.S. Open, she's done a Wimbledon, Roland Garros, Australian Open. Now you look for Iga Sviantek, of course, throughout, you know, since August 2020, since, you know, the tour resumed play post pandemic. She's 52 and 19 overall. She's 26 and 3 against opponents ranked outside the top 50. If you are not a top 50 opponent, if you don't have the sort of weapons to either get her off her front foot or the sort of physicality to last with the heaviness of her ball, you are not going to beat her. 44-9 against opponents ranked outside the top 20. And you looked at, for, at the numbers for her. Yeah, you know, the serve percentage dips by about 2% and the return percentage points one dip by about 1%. But, you know, that margin between top 20 and top 50, uh, players ranked outside the top 20 and players ranked outside the top 50, but within the top 100, very, very thin margins. The point being, Sviantek having success against all of them. She is 8-10 and 10 against opponents ranked inside the top 20. And that, to me, is where, you know, when you're starting to look for the, the kernels of, well, where does she need to get better? It's on the return of serve. Her return points one drops from 48.2% against opponents outside the top 20 to 40.8% against opponents inside the top 20. So a 7.4 percentage point drop. And that speaks to the fact if you have a big first serve, given the extreme nature of Sviantek's forehand grip, 
you know, you can get that ball into her body. You can draw a slice response. You can get her stretched and on the run and not being able to dictate. And, you know, obviously a faster surface in particular seems to expose uh, that forehand return. But you better have a damn good serve if you think you're going to expose that forehand return. You better be able swinging away if you think you're going to get a ball by her because she does move that well. And that, again, where I know I'm repeating myself here, but credit to Kirstea. She did that. She swung away throughout the course of this match. That's all you can ask for from her as the underdog. But Sviantek manages to survive it. And I do think, again... This was a good test for her as we look towards the rest of the tournament because now you look for Iga Sviantek. Obviously, she's the highest seed remaining. She has an opportunity here. She's got Kai Kanepi next. She's a 74.6% favorite in that match. Things have opened up for Iga Sviantek. And boy, would I like to see a Barty Sviantek rematch because I'm telling you, first 30 minutes of that match, best tennis I've seen all season the question is, you know, if it's not Sviantek, and I know we're focusing on the seeds here, it's not exactly a hot take, but I do think Danielle Collins has played well enough now that we got to start considering her a serious threat to not only make the final, but honestly knock off Barty and win this tournament because you look for Danielle Collins, she did not serve well against Elisa Mertens. I don't think either player served particularly well. But Collins swung so aggressively from the baseline throughout the course of this match. And you look for Danielle Collins. It was, you know, 45 winners against 41 unforced errors. Mertens, 33 winners against 29 unforced errors. Anything that wasn't a plus one winner from Elisa Mertens, it felt like slowly over time, Danielle Collins was able to break Mertens down and, you know, win those points, whether it be throwing these loopy moon balls at her until, you know, Mertens would land one short, then she'd take it early on the rise, then she'd take one down the line. And Danielle Collins' refusal to move forward throughout the course of this match definitely extended some rallies further than they needed to go. But you look for Danielle Collins, she was still 13 of 17 when she did choose to come forward. But perhaps most pressingly, you look at the five plus shot rally, she's plus 21 in that category, wins 45 to 8 shot rallies to Mertens 20, 11 9 plus shot rallies to Mertens 10. It just felt like eventually, you know, again, whether it was on the return of serve, whether it was when she was landing a first serve, she was able to, you know, get Mertens stretched into the outer thirds of the court, then get her stretched again into the outer third of the court, then finally take a ball early on the rise when the moment called for it. It was just efficient, ruthless baseline tennis from Danielle Collins, who, you know, there is some added action and aggression on that, uh, on her, on her forehand with, you know, yes, it's a bigger loop, but, you know, it does have so much knife on that ball. And you look for her on the backhand wing as well, her ability to drive that ball cross court or guide it down the line, take it early on the rise as a return of serve. She's got a lot of options uh, throughout uh, from the baseline, excuse me. But, you know, again, credit to Elisa Mertens, who was, you know, anytime she landed a first serve and Collins would land a return short, she got Collins stretched into the outer thirds of the court. And credit to Elisa Mertens. Yeah, Collins ends up plus 21 in the five plus shot category, but Mertens extended a lot of balls, you know, a lot of rallies, one, two, three extra shots, just getting her racket on it. Now, again, credit to Collins for putting those shots away, but lesser players would not have had the discipline to be able to do that. Lesser players would have, you know, prematurely started going for things early in rallies, and it's a credit to Collins' discipline that she did not do that, but Man, what a physical performance from Elisa Mertens in this one. Still, you know, again, it, it's a tough loss 
for Elisa Mertens, who I mentioned this stat when she qualified for this round. Elisa Mertens now 16 uh, consecutive third rounds or further for her at Grand Slams. But you look for her overall, you know, again, once she reaches that third round or further at the slam, she's been pretty good in round number three, 10 and seven overall. But you look for her in the round of 16, three and seven in her 10 round of 16 appearances. You look for her in the quarterfinals, one and two in her quarterfinal appearances, of course, 0-1, that 2018 Australian Open semifinal. She ends up losing to eventual champion Caroline Wozniacki. I mean, here's the thing with Mertens, and I talked about her ability to extend rallies. She can, she has a plan A. You know, again, those zero to five, four shot rallies, she out hits Collins in those potential, and she plays with a lot of precision, and she is willing to come forward, and she will change directions on you and change the locations of her approach shots But she doesn't have overwhelming power. And to a certain extent, there's a certain threshold at the top of the women's game right now. If you can't consistently hurt them, you know, again, they're going to beat you. And I just think the best of a Danielle Collins, unfortunately for, for Mertens, while her floor from match to match may be as high as any player out there, the ceiling just isn't quite as high because she doesn't have those big weapons to make things extraordinarily easy on herself. Now, again, the plus one tennis she played worked against Danielle Collins, but I think there are more fluid movers than Elisa Mertens or more proficient returners at the top of the game who would knock her off. And just again, it's there's a reason the records in round of 16 quarterfinals etc look the way that they do still she played well enough to win this match and that's where you got to give all the credit in the world to Danielle Collins for executing down the home stretch for you know again from an energy perspective you didn't hear a lot of commands in set number one set number two full volume full speed by set number three and that's a testament to the energy she was putting into just again staying alive in this match and creating opportunities for herself to get that final break of serve uh and and get over the finish line she's able to do it in the end so you look overall again and by the way daniel collins in this match five of 18 on break point chances elisa mertens four of nine this match was on collins terms that's a testament to how dangerous she is from the baseline she advances to what is now the uh third excuse me, quarterfinal of her career at the Grand Slams. First one for her since the 2020 Roland Garros, of course. She's made one semifinal in her career. It was at the 2019 Australian Open. Really fun 2019 Australian Open first set semifinal between her and Petra Kvitova before Collins just kind of ran out of steam down the home stretch. But Credit to Collins. And, you know, again, for both Collins and Sviantec, they're going to be comfortable favorites in their matches against Kanepi and against Cornet, respectfully. You look for them, you know, again, Collins a 76.8% favorite. That's the biggest of the round. Iga Sviantec, 74.6% favorite. She's a bigger favorite, obviously, than Ashley Barty, although that Ashley Barty is even close, given she's playing number 21, Jess Pegula, a testament to how fond the numbers are of Barty. But, yeah, to pick them between Collins, Sviantek, they've both looked good. I think Sviantek served better. I think she's moving better. I just think Sviantek has a heavier ball from the baseline, a little bit better version. Again, like I would say Sviantek is Collins 1.25, so I still lean Sviantek. But Daniel Collins is playing well enough to beat anyone on any given day. And she does have the mindset, right, where she believes she is the best player on the court on any given day. And in these sorts of stages, that matters. And, you know, she's won a pressure-packed title before. I know you're going to say, Alex, stop bringing up college tennis whenever you can. But it really helps to be the best at whatever you're doing at some point in your life. And she was the best college tennis player in the world, excuse me. And then she proved it twice. 
winning two NCAA singles championships. So I just think having had defended that sort of pressure before, having made a Grand Slam semifinal before, I mean, she's playing Alizé Cornet, who is going to be cooked physically. And yeah, let's talk about Cornet Halep. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. I mean, the conditions were so brutal. It was just so hot out throughout the course of that match, and you could see both players suffering physically as they played, you know, 10-ball rally after 10-ball rally after 10-ball rally, and you look throughout the course of this match, 0-4 to four shots won, you know, 39 for Halep, 29 for Alizé Cornet, but they played 39, uh, excuse me, they played 68 0-4 shot rallies. They played 65 5-8 shot rallies. They played 48 nine plus shot rallies. So again, zero to four shot rallies. Yes, they were the majority of the points, but they were like 52% of the points in this match. Excuse me. They were like, uh, they weren't, they were the plurality. That's the term I was looking for. They were the plurality throughout the course of this match. They were not the majority. They were about 37% of the points played in this match and everything got extended because both of these players are exceptionally fluid movers. Both of them willing to track down that extra ball in the outer third, toss a sky lob into the air. The biggest difference for me, A, was just the the willingness for Alizé Cornet to employ the drop shot. It just felt like she had Halep on the run and just would, you know, then throw that in there and then mix in the lob and just, you know, play all the angles and not that Halep, there was really, the, the margins were thin. I don't have much to say about this match. This was just a physical battle. And in the end, I do think Cornet was a little bit more daring with the drop shots and playing the angles. And you look at the net, Alizé Cornet, 15 of 18 in this match. Uh, Halep, 13 of 24. Again, you look total points one, it was 93 to Halep, 88 to Alizé Cornet. This was absolutely a pick sort of match. Halep just had a couple of rough stretches at the start of that third set, obviously at the start of the first set as well. Cornet was up a set and a break though, and Halep came roaring back to take the second set and just, this was a marathon sort of match. And I, I, I said throughout the tournament, I didn't think Simona Halep was serving extraordinarily well. I thought she was serving better and better and moving really well. But the serve is what let her down. Just was really difficult for her to win any free points throughout the course of this match. Now, that is a testament to Alizé Cornet. But, you know, again, a tough defeat for Halep given how the draw had opened up. That said, Alizé Cornet, first round of 16 of her career. She had fallen short five prior times, I believe now, in her career. This is her first quarterfinal in her 63rd Grand Slam appearance. Yeah, that's pretty freaking impressive for Alizé Cornet to just, again, the perseverance for her. I mean, her career started all the way back in 2004 was when she played her first pro tennis match. Now, she was 14 in 2004. But again, we're talking about a player whose career has spanned now three different decades. And for her to reach her first Grand Slam quarterfinal in that third decade, what a talent for Alizé Cornet. Such perseverance and just, 
you know, again, very minimized weaknesses, her ability to move in the outer thirds, turn defense into offense, track down what you're doing, throw different looks at you. She doesn't have the overwhelming weapon. And I do think that's why when you look at her next match for Cornet, it's going to be tough for her to get through Danielle Collins. She'll throw extra balls at Collins, but as we saw today, Collins is just going to keep slugging away and opening up inch in, upon inch until she's got the court to play with. And look, Collins is gassed after a physical three-set match with uh, with Mertens, no doubt. But Cornet, even more so. Amplify that by a thousand. Just Halep Cornet was a marathon. You could tell both of them. Fluids, hot bath, ice tub, whatever you got to do, get ready for that quarterfinal match. I think Collins, 76.8% might be being a bit generous. I do think, even if they're both tired, giving the player with the bigger weapons in that instance, for me, that player is Danielle Collins. But again, all the credit in the world to Alize Cornet for the perseverance. You could see the emotions in her face in the pro. Poach, uh, pro, post-match, excuse me, uh, interview, just she starts tearing up. The on-court interview starts tearing up. It was a beautiful moment. It's everything this sport can be, just the triumph of individual will and perseverance and discipline and all of the sacrifice that goes into all of it over the years. All that epitomized in Alize Cornet's relief, just excitement to make the quarterfinals. So much class from Halep after the match and the messages she puts out as well. And that's why Halep is Halep. She is the classiest human in all of tennis but yeah I mean again maybe not the classiest there are others who are up there as well but as classy as anyone but all the credit in the world to Alize Cornet who advances to her first career quarterfinal of course you know what's crazy we've talked about five matches there's still more drama to go of course next you'd probably turn back to the men's side Let's just talk quickly about Felix Ogier Aliassime because we focused on him a lot throughout the course of this event because he's played so many outstanding matches, whether it be Rusevori or, you know, in five sets or whether it be his four-set match in round number two as well, where he didn't play his best tennis. But I thought Felix still played pretty well in his four-set win in round number two, or at least played well enough in uh, round number two, that 7-6, 6-7, 7-6, 6 win over Davidovich Fokina. Uh, and then, of course, you know, round number three best performance I've seen from Felix of the season, a season where he's already beaten Bautista Gud and Zverev, I believe, and, you know, I think Nori as well, where, you know, Felix just lights out against Dan Evans, just plus one him to death, and just the heaviness of his service forehand into the backhand of Evans, he broke him down. And then, you know, today, in his four-set win over Marin Cilic, it was interesting because Chilich outplayed him from the plus ones, uh, you know, at the start of the match, or anything beyond the plus one at the start of the match was plus 11 through the first 11 games in those five plus shot rallies. And it just felt like Chilich, even with Felix, would get the return back in play. You know, Chilich would slam a first forehand. And because Felix is such a great athlete, he would track that ball down. But there was so much open court to play with. That's an easy plus two winner for Marin Chilich. And just, it felt like all of the extended rallies were because Felix was playing defense and just doing whatever he can to get the ball back on the court. But, you know, again, Felix, even during that stretch, was outdoing Chilich in the plus one tennis. And I think we look over the course of this match, and that was the difference between the two of them. You look for Felix 22 aces to Chilich's 24, but 62% first serve percentage to Chilich's 54%. That was critical because Chilich and, and FAA each won 86% of their uh, first serve points. FAA 58% on the second serve to Chilich's uh, 45. FAA plus seven in the winner to unforced errors. Chilich plus one. Now I do want to <laughs> point out 
out. Chilich hit 61 winners to 60 unforced errors in this match. He was gunning because that's what he had to do. He wasn't going to win the physical battles. That's what made the start of the first set in those, you know, and and the numbers from this that Chilich seemed to win the extended rallies so shocking. But Chilich was just gunning at every point of the rally. And, and you know, again, for uh, FAA in the win, and he's plus 26 in the zero to four shot rallies. His plus one held out throughout the course of the match. I think the biggest difference for Chilich as this match went on is Felix started to get in a read on his serve and just started being able to, you know, anticipate where Chilich was going to go and just get that ball back with depth. And it forced Marin Chilich to have to go after that plus one ball from uncomfortable positions in the court. And ultimately, you know, again, two tiebreaker sets go the way of Felix. Chilich played pretty damn well throughout the course of this match. You know, can, is two of two on breakpoint chances. Felix, two of 15 on breakpoint chances. They broke serve the same amount of times and neither of them broke serve outside of the first and third sets. But in the end, Felix was better in the tiebreakers. Again, that plus one, serve plus one, I've said it all week long. It is elite of the elite. The heaviness of that shot, his spot serve, just responding to that ball, not knowing if he's going to go inside in, inside out, all of the different things he can do. I think he's gotten so much more drive on his backhand as well. He he just outplayed Chilich here in this matchup. And again, a credit to him because Marin Chilich has played some outstanding ball of late. And this just shows this is the sort of win we would have seen Felix perhaps lose earlier in his career. He does not. He advances now to the matchup we've all been waiting for. Next up for him, Daniil Medvedev, who, yeah, oh, by the way, for Felix Ojeralia, seem worth mentioning, you know, for him. Fifth round of 16 for him in his career. You look for Felix. Yes, he's been around for a while. He's still only played 11 round of one. He's played 11 grand slams. He's made five second weeks. Come on now. Like, come on. Youngest player since Delpo to make three quarterfinals. Come on now. Like, oh, but he doesn't want an ATP title. <laughs> That's very stupid. Like, just, again, the numbers suggested he's number nine in the world. He's 21 years old. The serve, the the hold percentage inches closer and closer to a top 10 number each and every season. The break percentage inches closer and closer to the top 25. What have we learned? Whether it be the Tsitsipas recipe, whether it be any of these guys, if you can be top 25 in both categories, you're one of 13 or 10 players to be that each and every season. You're in the mix for each and every title. And even at age 21 years old, when there are clearly things Felix can get better at, he's already in the mix. Just a good win for it. You know, again, he outpowered tennis, a veteran opponent. That's an impressive accomplishment for Felix as he now advances to the quarterfinal matches where, again, he's going to be a 13.9% underdog against Daniil Medvedev. Medvedev playing that well, an 86.1% favorite. He's now a 57.4% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract, to capture the 2022 Australian Open title. And, you know, he did the match against Max Cressy, the six foot six former UCLA NCAA doubles champion who's been a rising star, one of the winners of January, looked exactly what you'd expect it to look like. Cressy won a tiebreak set, 0 of 1 on breakpoint chances. On 9 of Medvedev's 12 breakpoint chances in the match, he came up with a big first serve, came up with a big plus 1 volley. He goes 89 of 135 at the net, 75 winners against 49 unforced errors. And yet Medvedev still beats him. 60 winners against 11 unforced errors for Medvedev. And just, 
you know, was able to dip the plus one ball or dip the return at Cressy's feet, give himself two, pa- you know, a plus two passing shot opportunity. You just can't give Medvedev or Nadal's of the world two pass shot combos as Max Cressy has learned. And, you know, again, any baseline rally, you look in this match and there were, you know, it was actually kind of interesting. Cressy, 27 uh, points one on the five plus shot rallies, Medvedev, 32. But what was most impressive for Medvedev, he out zero, you know, plus ones, Maxime Cressy, just 124 to Cressy's 111. And, you know, again, Medvedev, who serves like a six foot six human you'd expect to serve, uh, just was very decisive with his plus one approach shot, whether going inside in or changing up his targets, moving forward, mixing in drop shot, just not allowing Cressy to return in volley and not allowing Cressy to make play on his terms in Medvedev's service games. You know, that's a testament to Daniil Medvedev and his growth as a player. And there's not much left to say about Medvedev other than he is the favorite as we look towards the home stretch of this 2022 Australian Open in the men's singles competition. He's passed every test, you know, again, got pushed by Kyrgios, gets through, gets pushed by an informed Cressy who makes things uncomfortable, but pushes through. And yeah, to the, well, what do you think about him calling Cressy's game style bored? It's extraordinarily boring to play against. He's not saying it's boring to watch. It's extraordinarily boring to play against. And guess what? That's just true. That's factually accurate. I don't know why we're criticizing him for saying something factually inaccurate. As a tennis player and as a fellow grinder, as Daniil Medvedev, not saying to the same level, but as someone who experienced the same mindset, and I imagine some of you listeners play this, feel the same way as well. Don't you love when I make an anecdote about my own playing career? But I, I, I think I might have even shared this anecdote before – my loving former Great Shot Podcast co-host, doubles partner, man who assisted me in having the hubris to start this endeavor. I used to always tell him before our matches because you get the you know the half hour to warm up, whatever, before you start. And I used to always tell him, hey, with all due respect, I don't want to warm up with you. I want to warm up with our women's singles player, Carrie Hu, because we're just going to grind a million balls in a row. We're going to hit a thousand balls in 30 minutes, and I'm not going to miss a shot. She's not going to miss a shot. I'm going to have the rhythm I need for us to get started versus playing against you, who's going to slap every third ball because that's what you do in the rally, and that's how you warm up. And I hate warming up with that, and I really don't want to do that. And, you know, again, in practice, it's like, what are you trying to work on? Are you, I get what you're working on, trying to disrupt rhythms and trying to end points quickly and play your terms. I'm out here to sweat, man. I'm not going pro. I need to get as warmed up as humanly possible and as loose as humanly possible. The point being, that is why I would not hit with him because it was not as fun. It was not as beneficial. It's just so, you know, again, big serve, big rip. Okay, what did we learn there? Nothing. That's what Max Cressy does to you and that's why he's so effective because he does disrupt your rhythm because he doesn't allow you to get comfortable throughout a course of a match. You can imagine how frustrating that may be and how boring that may be for someone like Daniil Medvedev who's used to extending rallies, getting creative, thriving in the outer thirds, not just return, serve and volley, point is over. And so again, I don't – I have no issues with Daniil Medvedev calling that game style boring to play against. I don't think it's boring to watch. I would disagree with that assessment. But hey, everyone skins a cat their own way. So that would be my thoughts on Medvedev Cressy. And again, Max Cressy, I'm not sure if he's top 50 after this. The live ranking's a bit screwed up, but he's going to be darn near close to it. And he's certainly going to get into every Grand Slam that he wants to play throughout the course of this season. And that means you're now in the ballgame if you're Max Cressy. Not to dismiss what the guys at the challenger level are doing. We talk about it so frequently here at Cracked Rackets. And it's an exciting week at the Columbus Challenger. We'll talk about it at some point here on this show. But, 
you know, again, now he, he has world number one aspirations. Well, where are the biggest sums of points found? At the Grand Slams. He's into a fourth round at one. What does it mean when you have, play, have now a top 75 rankings? You can play tournaments with higher level quality, you know, higher level points, whether it be 250s exclusively, whether it's getting into qualifying or even if he's lucky, main draws of Miami, of Indian Wells over this sunshine swing, indoor hard cut courts in Europe coming up. That's going to be an area where Max Cressy thrives. He's positioned himself to make a push here at the start of the season. That's all you can ask for, but he's just not quite dynamic of a returner, not quite dynamic enough at the baseline yet to deal with someone the quality of Medvedev. And then last but certainly not least, and I saved this one for last because I don't know how I feel, Kai Kanepi, three sets over Arena Sabalenka. You look for Kai Kanepi, 10th round of 16 in her career, seventh quarterfinal now for her. At Grand Slam, she's made quarterfinals again of each Grand Slam now, this being her first in Australia. What a brilliant career for the 36-year-old who, you know, again, you look for Kanepi over these last 52 weeks, 28 and 15, had a really good run in Australia last year. And just you look at the run she's been able to earn on her way to uh, this uh, this excuse me, quarterfinal now, excuse me. And, you know, again, for Kai Kanepi, it's the wins for her, whether it be, you know, three sets over Madison Inglis after dropping that first set 6-2 or the straight sets over Kerber in round one, straight sets over Buzkova in round two now, 5-7-6-2, in that deciding third set breaker over Arena Sabalenka. What a run for Kanepi. What's the better story, Kanepi or Cornet? If there was a first take of, of you know, tennis where they're doing the debate show for everyone, you know, what's the more impressive take? I think Stephen A would be like, now let me tell you, Max. Um, I'm not going to do my Stephen A impression, but skip, skip. Or what, what's the Max note? Stephen A, Stephen A, Stephen A. The, the Kellerman, it's incredible. Um, anyways, I, I do think for Sabalenka, she just – went down swinging you know again only makes 49 percent of her first serve has not served well in this tournament but wins 73 percent of her first serve points and you know fights off five of the eight break point chances she faces converts four of the 13 chances she has hits you know 30 winners against 30 unforced errors kind of let sabalanka self-destruct at times and then you know weathered the storm and dictated when she could and certainly the sabalanka serve as it had at times ultimately was the achilles heel that betrayed her 15 double faults in this match you just can't do that and expect to get away with it you know in two of four matches at a grand slam and ultimately the serving came back to bite her but i will say if you're arena sabalanka that you continue to serve so poorly that it's clearly the glaring thing holding you back right now for success and yet you were still able to find a couple of wins and find some confidence from a match play perspective and from an everything else perspective in australia i don't think you can call australia a win given her results but there are kernels of positivity and like you, you can call it not a loss, which about a month ago and I just think in general was not what you expect – or about a month ago, excuse me, about a week ago, you would not have said for Sabalenka. I think there's ways to spin this for her where you say somehow you survived to get to this point of the tournament. But hey, I mean again, there were just – there were some familiar – things ghosts from the past from Sabalenka that certainly crept up the yips and just you know again the erraticness in the biggest moments in that tiebreaker not being willing to just make a return in play and grind out some points you know try and find the Kanepi backhand because she couldn't really hurt you on that backhand wing but anytime she gave Kanepi a forehand Kanepi would try to gun it or change directions with it you know Sabalenka didn't think to slow things down didn't think 
to extend rallies in those big pressure-packed moments because that's not her game speed. That never will be her game speed, but I think it could be. I like the day Arena Sapolenka finds the 75% rally ball, not her going Mach 5, just the 75% consistent rally ball, which 75% of her speed is 110% of most people's other, other people's speed. Look out, rest of the tennis world, because that player can be a dominant world number one. But credit to Kaya Kanepi, who, again, just played a tactically disciplined match, went after first serves, changed directions, was aggressive on returns of serves. Just, you know, yes, she floated a couple of second serves, but, you know, why was the first serve or why was the second serve number as high as it was? Because she was more aggressive with that second serve, understanding the importance of dictating from the start against Arena Sabalenka. So credit, all the credit in the world to Kaya Kanepi, who thoroughly earned this victory against the number two seed Sabalenka. Now advances again to another grand slam quarterfinal where certainly she's you know again you look at the numbers yeah they don't you know 25.4 percent tennis abstract doesn't love her DraftKings doesn't love her but hey you're in the final eight you're in the ball game and at age 36 that's exactly what you're looking for in your pro career so all the credit in the world to Kaya Kanepi who advances to the round uh, uh to the quarterfinal round with that said as I did at the end of the last podcast Shviantek Collins Kanepi Cornet. That would be my power rankings on the women's single side. On the men's side, Medvedev, Sinner, FAA, Tsitsipas, in that order as well. That's what I think are the power rankings. And then if you ask me for the top eight, I would say Barty one, Keys two, Shriantek three, Krejcikova four, Collins five, Pagula six, Kanepi seven, Cornet eight. I would go Medvedev 1, Nadal 2, uh, Sinner 2, Nadal 3, FAA 4, Berrettini 5. Man, I guess if Berrettini's 5, I mean, I think Berrettini's going to beat Monfils, but I guess Monfils 6, Shapovalov 7, although I think he ends up losing to Fritz, and then who am I forget? Oh, no, Medvedev's not 8. Medvedev's 1. I, but I think I said Medvedev at 1, and he plays FAA. Who does Sinner face? Sinner faces Tsitsipas. He's 6. Nadal faces Shapo. Well, I guess Monfils is number 8 if Shapo's number 7, and then, yeah, Berrettini number 6. Y- you guys get what I'm saying here. All right. Uh, let me try that again on the men's side. Leave all of that in, though, Westoff, because I like people hearing my thought process out loud. Medvedev 1, Sinner 2. Nadal 3, FAA 4, Berrettini 5, Monfils 8. What do I want to do with the order of these two? Chapeau 7, I suppose. So then, yeah, I guess that makes whoever... Wait, Monfils, Chapeau, Berrettini. I can't believe I keep blanking out on this, but who's in the bottom half of the draw here? Oh, I think I... Oh, and Tsitsipas. I keep forgetting Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas 6. Yeah, lock that in. Okay. So, one more time. Leave all of that in, though, Westoff. 1. Medvedev. 2. Sinner. 3. Rafa. 4. FAA. 5. Berrettini. 6. Tsitsipas. 7. Shapovalov. 8. Monfils. That's where I stand as we enter the quarterfinal round. Of course, I want to know where all of you listeners stand. Feel free to reach out to me at 
uh, A.L. Gruskin on Twitter. You can reach out to all of us at Cracked Rackets as well. Of course, if you go to our website, CrackedRackets.com, you'll be able to catch up on each and every day of the 2022 Australian Open. You can hear previews each and every day on our GSP Ace of the Day segment. We're finishing in the positive, folks. That's my guaranteed to all of you listeners as we approach the home stretch of the year's first Grand Slam event. Of course, all of that content, again, available on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to the mini break podcast to the great shot podcast our cracked interviews podcast our youtube channel as well to ensure you don't miss out on any of the action of course if you need the more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube we are at cracked rackets you want to message me directly i am at al gruskin and a shout out as always to our super producer daniel westoff for the of an editing job he does day in day out a shout out as well to our friends at tennis point tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with that said for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has a f- of an editing job to do, as always. Our friends at Tennis Point. And from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.